0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're continuing our series in the Book of Daniel, entitled "Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land." So, let's turn to Daniel chapter one, verses one to seven, as Dr. Newfeld introduces today's message: facing our greatest trials with success.
1: It's quite a long time ago now, but I remember when Fox Television Network aired a program that was entitled, You Could Marry a Multimillionaire. For those of us who remember, that event ended in a humiliating failure for Fox. Some reported that the multimillionaire that various young women were vying to marry on television was actually no millionaire at all. One news source said that rather than having money, this supposed millionaire was about 750000 in debt. See, it also became apparent that at some time in the past, this man had a police restraining order placed against him by his former girlfriend. The entire episode was a massive failure, and it became clear that Fox had not done their homework, and they were left red-faced. On top of that, the couple, that is, the supposed rich man and the woman who married him on television, well, they got back from their honeymoon, and the woman promptly announced that she was seeking, well, not a divorce, but an annulment to their marriage. She announced, I'm a Christian and I don't feel married in my own heart since the marriage was done on stage and on television and not in church. I remember thinking, now that's awfully convenient given the man is now a loser. You know, it's funny that she never said she was a Christian before she had a chance to marry a multimillionaire on TV. You know, it's funny, she never said she was a Christian and that marriage was a matter of a holy covenant before God, not an opportunity to get on a game show, get one's 15 minutes of fame, and walk out with loads of cash. It's funny, she only said she was a Christian after she realized that the millionaire was no Prince Charming after all, and that she had not got the prize that she expected from the non-Christian and secular world. That's when she remembered that she was a Christian. Ah, the religion of convenience. A religion that hopes for wealth and fame, and it's all too common, and it's so anti-Christ. Something very tragic has been happening on this continent. All manner of people have forgotten what it means to know God and the lifestyle implications behind such a covenant. They know nothing of cross-bearing and suffering and denying of self. In short, too many people have forgotten that God is not the ticket for personal fame and fortune in this world. Rather, he is the ticket for personal transformation into the image of Jesus Christ himself. He is the ticket to the life to come. He's the ticket to be made like him. I've entitled my dress, Facing Our Greatest Trials with Success. You know, as we're going to see, this passage has a lot to do with eating and refusing certain foods. Most of us know what the word kosher means. It's a Jewish word based around food rules. Leviticus 11:47 47 says, You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Every Jewish child learned that some things were fine to eat and some were not. That's what the word kosher means. It means that the things that God has permitted can be eaten. They are kosher. They are fit to be consumed. But kosher can also be descriptive of all of life. The word can be used to describe a way of living that demonstrates that we reject what is morally unclean or evil and that we cling to what is good and true and lovely and right to what builds up others and what demonstrates the love of God in Christ. We've begun a new series entitled Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land, and with that we begin with Daniel 1, verses 1 to 16. I want you to remember that this book is all about how one man lived as a believer in a pagan environment. His name was Daniel. Daniel was a bright member of the Jewish elite group of young people whose promise was considerable. But he was taken as a captive of war to a new country, the Empire of the Chaldeans, with its chief city of Babylon. And the lessons that Daniel learned are about living faithfully to his God in an unfaithful world. You know, this book can teach Canadian Christians today to live faithfully and victoriously in a country that does not acknowledge God. It can teach anyone who's interested in God to find him in a culture that does not seek him. And it's just that that we seek to discover in this book. So let's begin at the beginning. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessel in the treasury of his God. Let's understand Daniel's times. First Babylon, located in southern Iraq today, had become the great superpower of the ancient Near East. They had conquered the Assyrian Empire before them and had established their ability to brutally oppress and suppress all who stood in their way. The Assyrians before them were the first empire in history that I know of to develop a policy of dispossessing entire people groups, moving an an entire population to a new location, and to some degree, the Babylonians followed that model. At some point in a brief period of time, with King Nebuchadnezzar at the lead in about May or June of 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's powerful armies defeated the Egyptians in the famous battle of Carchemish. Because the king of Judah had become an ally of Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar then marched his troops north and within weeks was at the gates of Jerusalem. For those of you who know your Bibles very well, the date, the third year of Jehoiakim, should not trouble you, and it's very simple. The Babylonian and Jewish dating systems are different. There is no error in the various accounts. Now, because of this swift and utter defeat of the Egyptians, the citizens of Jerusalem were in terror. After a short siege, the Jews quickly surrendered and allowed the Babylonians in, and to the shock of the Jews, the Babylonians entered into their temple and emptied it of its sacred objects. Indeed, holy vessels dedicated to the Lord of hosts, the king of the whole earth, are now placed into the temple of pagan gods of Babylon celebrating their dominance over the Jews and over their God. Now, I want you to notice verse 2. The text says that Babylon defeated Jerusalem at the hand of God. It was in the end the Lord who gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. God punished Jerusalem for her sins by using the Babylonians to cause Jerusalem to be utterly humiliated and to suffer. But interestingly enough, not only did the wicked people of Jerusalem suffer, so did some very good people. So in the year 605 BC, Daniel was a young man, perhaps around 14 years of age. He was a member of the royal family. He was handsome. He was bright. He was athletic. He was quick-witted, and if time had allowed, would have been one of Jerusalem's great leaders. He was most likely a devout Jew who loved the God of Israel. But that year, the Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem, and he was taken as a captive to a strange country. I want you to go to the last verse of Daniel 1. It said, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That verse may mean little to you, but it really does say a lot. Let's assume that Daniel was 14 in the year 605 B.C. The first year of Cyrus is known to historians as the year 536 B.C., and that would mean that Daniel spent some 68 or 69 years in Babylon. The last verse of Daniel would indicate that Daniel was now 83 years old. Daniel would have spent his entire adult life away from Jerusalem. He, he would never see his homeland again. He would be separated from his parents at a very young and tender age. He would face tests of his faith that made most young men of his day crumble underneath the pressure, and he had no one to help him through. Yet he has become one of the great heroes of our faith. So how did he do it? Well, that's what this story is all about. And please note, sometimes godly people face seemingly impossible trials. I know that there are those who teach that as, as long as you love the Lord, no harm will ever come to you. There are those who teach that as long as you have faith, that then health and wealth and success will be yours. But that's just not so. Knowing God can put you into greater trials than you would have if you didn't know him. You say, are you sure about that? Yes, I am. Listen to Hebrews 12:5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he reproves. See, God knows that he's not preparing you for ease on this earth. God wants to make you into a man or a woman of integrity who's fit for his presence. God wants to transform you. He's going to use all the means at his disposal to heal you of your hellish nature and change you for his glory for the long-term good. That's his plan for you, and that was his plan for Daniel. So at the tender age of 14, until an old man, Daniel lived his entire life in a land filled with pagan idolatry, where men would hate his God and constantly seek his undoing. And it was in that context that he prospered. And it will not surprise us that in his story, we might find our own.
0: I think we can all relate to Daniel and some of the challenges he faced. And yet he found a way to prosper despite opposition. Well, great lessons to learn as we continue with Dr. Newfeld in just a moment. Ephesus, Athens, Patmos, Corinth, familiar? Well, these are some of the most significant locations in the New Testament and some of the incredible locations we'll be visiting on our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour this April 24th to May 5th. So consider joining us and a small group of friends, along with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and others. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: Sometimes godly people have seemingly impossible trials to face. They, they seem insurmountable. And yet God has given us a promise. God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, and Daniel's life and faith and courage surely demonstrates that. The first lesson that we must learn is that God always controls our impossible trials. Look again at verse 2. It says it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. From the very beginning of this book, it's made clear that Nebuchadnezzar's success against Jerusalem was the work of the one true God. It was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore it was the Lord who was the author of Daniel's exile. Daniel was about to face an impossible trial, but it turned out that it was God that arranged it. It was God's plan for him, and that wonderful knowledge can be liberating. See, I know some of you struggle under this kind of teaching. You want to believe that your life is under your control. Or at least you want to hear that, that God would never allow bad things to happen to his people. God controls our impossible trials. Well, that's the last thing you want to hear. But Daniel's life teaches us that God not only controls our impossible trials, but that God will teach you how to live victoriously in the trials that God has already prepared for you in advance. You don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. See, if you learn not to curse God in your defeat, if you learn to believe that God has something good for you in those trials, if you learn to live according to his wisdom and not yours, You can live successfully kosher in a non-kosher world. So let's continue to read. I'm reading verses 3 to 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. You know, I began by saying that sometimes godly people face seemingly impossible trials, so let me now add another point. Sometimes godly people seemingly face unstoppable evil power, because that's what Babylon was. The Bible speaks of the city of Babylon not only as a real city, but it also uses it as a metaphor of evil against God. In the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 11, Babylon or Babel— is the place of human culture's first great rebellion against God. It was there that humans first began to construct a rival religion to the worship of the one true God. And in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 17, verse 5, Babylon is called Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Down throughout history, the Bible has referred to it as a symbol of ultimate evil. And it's not just that Daniel lived in that city as a young man of 14. He was placed into a training program to assist the king of that city, and his life would depend upon his success. So King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, adopted what was considered an enlightened policy in regards to the nations that he had conquered. Instead of simply dominating other countries, something most other empires did— He decided to take advantage of the best minds, the most promising youths of the world, and educate them into leadership for the Babylonian Empire. And this really served him in two ways. First, it allowed him to use the greatest minds of the Middle East to pool the best brains for the service of the advancement of his empire. It would mean that he would forever dominate the world and second, it brought honor to the nations he had defeated, and so he bought their loyalty and made them supporters of his empire. If the brightest and best Jewish young men were his advisors, the Jews would take pride in how their race was honored in this empire, and Nebuchadnezzar would earn their loyalty forever. But Nebuchadnezzar had another policy, and this because he was no fool. His policy was to change the names of the young men being trained to be Babylonian leaders. Daniel is his Jewish name. It means, my judge is God. When this young man came to Babylon, it was changed to Belteshazzar, in which he was named after the Babylonian god, Bel, the chief god among the Babylonians. Hananiah means Yahweh has shown grace, and it becomes Shadrach, which means the command of Aku. Aku was a well-known moon god. And Mishael means who is what God is. His name becomes Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And finally, Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped, becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nebu, another Babylonian god. Now, I know that in Canadian culture, names don't mean that much. But to people in the Near East, names mean everything. A name was predictive of the kind of character that you would have or the kind of person you would become. When the names of these Jewish young men were changed, it was for the purpose of estranging them from their God and indoctrinating them into the Babylonian religion. Receiving foreign names meant for them that they were in the service of the gods of Babylon and not of the God of Israel. This renaming was intended to strip them of their identity and make them fully Babylonian. In short, they were to be fully immersed in the culture of their enemies so that they themselves would become enemies of the God of Israel. I mean, evil is like that. Furthermore, in the ancient world, the the one who names another is the one who has authority over the other. To be named by Nebuchadnezzar is to say that he is the one who has authority over you. And that will see an important point of application. There is a thing about evil that threatens our identity. Evil takes us in small increments and slowly reshapes us until it no longer seems strange that we have abandoned God, no longer pray or no longer trust him. That's how you can get people who claim an identity as Christians and don't even realize that their lifestyle choices have taken away their identity. That's how you can take a woman who who thought she was a Christian and appear on a major network flesh market, marry a man for television ratings, divorce him later, and feel justified. See, she does not know that evil has named her years ago and that she has forgotten what she was supposed to be. But that wasn't all that happened to these four young Hebrew men. It was their course of study that must have been most disturbing. They became enrolled in the Royal Academy of Babylon. They would begin with a long series of language studies. The most important language was Chaldean, which had a long history dating back to the time of Abraham, some 1,400 years old at that time. Abraham, if you will remember, came from Ur of the Chaldeans. See, to this end, the teachers were probably Chaldean priests who instructed them in history, in literature, and in religion. And the religion was occultic. They were to learn astrology and magical incantations and use divine tools to decipher dreams. They would be taught how to examine a sheep's liver to divine one's future. They would learn how to give someone good luck or to give them bad luck. So it's important to note that everything that was being learned was condemned by the law of God. For instance, Deuteronomy 18, 10-12 says the following, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritus, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. See, this was usually an intensive study that would last about three years. They'd be served royal food during this time, and the food was probably extremely lavish, better than anything they would have eaten before. It was probably first sacrificed to the gods of Babylon and to their service. Then it would come to the king's table, and then it would go to the royal academy. At the end of the three years of intensive training, the king himself would test the young men to see which ones were fit for his personal staff. Now, the life these young men were being offered in the academy was intense, but if they submitted to it, it presented them with a possibility of enjoying a life of power and influence and wealth. All they had to do was go along with it, and then they would find everything that this world had to offer. And it is in this world that Daniel distinguished himself as a man of God. How did he do that? Well, keep listening to this series, and you'll find out how you can do it as well.
0: Thanks for today's message, John. Let me ask you a question. Our culture tends to be somewhat insidious in how it challenges us almost to compromise our faith, thinking that maybe what we're doing isn't right, and we get messages from so many different places saying, your faith beliefs just aren't right. How do we deal with some of this stuff?
1: Yeah, I'm not even so sure that in a a Christian culture, which tends to be more and more biblically illiterate, that we even have an idea of the conflict that exists between our culture and what the Bible actually teaches. So I mean, I'm going to give a challenge there to uh, people that are listening today, and that is to simply say, my challenge is, for several weeks, maybe just one week, you spend more time in Scripture than you spend in television or the media or the internet, just give yourself a commitment that for one week I'm going to read my Bible more frequently than I listen to the voices of my culture and see how that begins to impact the way that I think about various voices that come from our culture. So, you know, that would be my encouragement so that, you know, we begin to really begin to reevaluate the way in which our thinking has been shaped and uh, and directed by the voices that we hear constantly so get back to the word
0: yeah let's challenge ourselves to control the influences in our lives come again tomorrow to join us with back to the bible canada leading you forward in your walk with jesus every day So much is happening, and we want to thank all those who have partnered with us to make this very special part of our ministry possible. I'm talking about our partnership with Back to the Bible India. In the weeks ahead, Dr. Newfeld's Bible teaching will reach millions on radio in English, Hindi, and Telugu. And in the new year, Dr. Newfeld himself will be conducting a pastor's conference where we'll be teaching the discipline of expositional preaching. The budget for the ministry in India is approximately $80,000. And this is an ongoing annual cost as we work together to bring the truth of God's Word to life in India. So would you join us for this great ministry venture? Give for the first time, give to continue to support this ongoing ministry, or become a monthly partner with a primary focus on ministry in India. Call us today to offer your support or to get more information at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit online at backtothebible.ca.